0: I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to two openings of Scripture this morning. We'll start with Galatians chapter 3 and then also Genesis chapter 2. Galatians chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 2. We want to begin with uh, Galatians 3 verse 13, which says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Now the next verse tells us why he did that that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith, and that or so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, notice we're already there in chapter 3. Notice, uh, skip down with me to verse 29, the last verse in the chapter. And it says, and if you be Christ, so he's writing to Christians, he's writing to you and me. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, what's an heir? An heir is somebody that partakes of an inheritance, Now, what's the inheritance? Abraham's blessing. Now, if you talk to most Christians, we've said this before, and and so forgive me for repeating myself, but I think some things need to be repeated uh, for for our benefit. Uh, If you talk to most Christians and you ask them about being redeemed, what what did Jesus redeem us from? Most Christians will say sin. And that's only partly true because sin is not really the issue. The Bible says the problem with mankind, the problem with us prior to when we made Jesus the Lord of our lives, was not that we were sinners. The problem was we were spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says, uh, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. The problem is that that mankind is dead apart from and without Jesus. Now, if we talk about being redeemed from the curse of the law, the curse of the law comes down to three things and encompasses three things. First is spiritual death. Second is sickness. And third is poverty. The Bible says that Jesus has redeemed us from all those things. Now turn back with me to, to Genesis chapter 2. This is the first law that God ever gave mankind. It's what he told Adam in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. He said, uh, he's previously said, you can eat of all the uh, trees of the garden, but uh, of the tree, verse 17, Genesis chapter 2, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat up it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, we know he's not talking about physical death because Adam didn't die physically the day that he ate of the tree. So what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. From that point, when Adam disobeyed God, broke God's commandment, in other words, he died spiritually. He was separated from God. Now, that's the definition of spiritual death. Very rarely in the Bible does, a, well, never in the Bible, does, uh, does death mean the cessation of life. It's talking about a departure Death is always spoken of as a departure in some way or another. Physical death is a departure from the physical body. Well, here death is talking about spiritual death. And death, spiritual death is is defined or can be defined from Scripture, from what we know from the Bible, as separation from God. So he's saying in the day that you eat thereof of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat thereof, you will be separated from God. Now that's mankind's problem. The problem is mankind is separated from God. And Jesus is the only thing that can fix that. Now what that means is, we know from Romans chapter uh, 6, for example, it says, but the wages of sin is death. Well, what death is the way, is, uh, the, punish, the punishment or the penalty for sin? Spiritual death. He's not saying the wages of, of sin is physical death. The wages of sin or the, the byproduct or the result, the end result of death of sin, excuse me, is spiritual death. Somebody had to pay that price for spiritual death. If not, then that price still has yet to be paid. Thank God the Bible says Jesus did the work. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, I want you to see a couple of scriptures here with me. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 21 No, that's not what I want. What do I want? Uh, Look with me to verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Now, this death is talking about spiritual death. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. Now, notice, and and this is a general rule. It may not hold true in, in every case. There may be an exception here and there. But for the most part, When the Bible, the New Testament particularly, speaks of sin in the singular form, it's talking about the original sin. Sins, plural, means the sins or the acts acts of disobedience of mankind. But sin, singular, is talking about original sin, that which brought about spiritual death. That's what it means here. Adam's one sin opened the door to spiritual death, separation from God for all of mankind. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, spiritual death by sin, sin was the open door. And so death, spiritual death, passed upon all men. That's why we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's why the earth is without hope, apart from Jesus. And so death passed upon all men. Now, what is going to pay the price for that? What is going to be the solution for that spiritual death? If spiritual death is the price for sin that is already committed, Adam's sin, and that spiritual death is passed upon all men. Then, what is the only possible solution for that? Somebody's got to pay that price. Well, who did? Thank God, Jesus did. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one tells us what the penalty was or how that uh, that payment took place. It says, "For he, speaking of God, made him, speaking of Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin for us." Now, notice it doesn't say Jesus paid the price for your sins. See, in a a strictly technical sense, Jesus didn't redeem you from sins. Jesus didn't redeem you from the wrong things that you did. Jesus didn't go to the cross because you lied to your third grade teacher. Jesus went to the cross because Adam disobeyed God's first commandment. And as a result of Adam disobeying God's first commandment, spiritual death, the door to spiritual death was opened and that spiritual death passed upon or became the uh, possession of every man that's why jesus went to the cross now for your personal sins your individual sins jesus through his death because he paid the price for original sin and overcame the consequence of spiritual death by taking that upon himself or entering into that uh, himself he can declare you not guilty for the sins that you committed But he didn't die for your individual sins. He died for the sin of mankind. Sin singular. That's what this is talking about. And notice it says, for he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. When? Now, here's a real important um, uh, principle that you need to understand. Jesus was not made sin when he was in his earthly ministry. Jesus didn't take sin upon himself when he was here on the earth. Jesus didn't partake or participate in sin in any form whatsoever. He was, remember we we're talking about the result of sin, original sin and spiritual death. He was never uh, disconnected or separated from God while he was here on the earth until he went to the cross. So when it says he was made, he, God made Jesus to be sin for us, it's talking about on the cross. That's a real important principle because it's going to hold true for everything that you're redeemed from. God made Jesus to be sin on the cross for us. Not because of any personal interaction or experience with sin that Jesus had. He had none. Who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin in and of himself. Now why did he do that? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, for spiritual death we have eternal life. The exchange of spiritual death, the price that Jesus paid, made for us or provided for us eternal life. And that's not eternal life. That's not something that happens when you get to heaven. That's yours now if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. I would suggest that uh, for those that think that, that eternal life is all about heaven, I would suggest that, uh, that those folks get into the Bible and find out what the Bible says belongs to us now. Now, what does that mean? That means Jesus had to die spiritually. Now, I know some people are uncomfortable with that idea and and that thought. Maybe the majority of people. But the reality is simply this. If Jesus didn't pay the price for sin, man's original sin, which is spiritual death, then that, that price still has to be paid. That price still is due, which means you or I are going to have to pay for it. Jesus either paid for it once and for all so that we don't have to or it's still due. And you and I still owe that price, that debt and have to pay that price when we die physically. Thank God we don't have to. But that's an important point, folks. Jesus had to be separated from God. Spiritual death is separation from God. That means he had to be separated from God. That means he had to cease to be God at some point. You can't still be God and be separated from God, can you? Now, I know this is hard for us to comprehend, and a lot of people don't, don't even like to go down that road to think about things like that. But the reality is either the price was paid or it was not. If it was paid, then Jesus had to cease being God. He had to be separated from God. Now, how did that happen? Because God made him to be sin for us. God made him to be sin for us. Now, I don't, I don't pretend to know how all that worked. I just know that it did. I know that it has to because if God did not make Jesus to be sin for us, then the price for sin still has to be paid. Yet the Bible says we know that we pass from death, spiritual death, unto life. John wrote to the church. We know that we passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. I don't know about you, but I know that the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart. I know that I love people now like I didn't love people before. So I know that something has happened to release me from spiritual death. I've got the presence of the Holy Ghost on the inside of me as the proof that I'm no longer bound or held by spiritual death. Don't you? So it had to have taken place. Now, how did that take place? Well, it took place on the cross. It took place because God made Jesus the substitute for all of mankind. Now, you could well understand that a man who is subject to spiritual death himself could not pay his own price or could not be the, the sacrifice or the substitute for mankind. A spiritually dead man can't die spiritually. So God had to bypass the spiritual death that, was, that belonged to humanity that came through Adam, and that's the whole reason for the virgin birth. God is bypassing the spiritual death that passed upon all men through Adam by bypassing the man the human male component of conception. That's why the virgin birth is so important, folks. I know some people treat it as a side issue, but it is in the main line. So man couldn't do the job himself, man couldn't be a sacrifice for himself or for anybody else. So it's going to take a, a divine agent It's going to take the Son of God to bypass the spiritual death that passed upon all men through Adam through the virgin birth. Now what I'm trying to get across to you folks is something happened on the cross that broke that relationship that you and I had that mankind has with spiritual death. Now that doesn't mean it automatically falls on us. We have to accept that, receive that and take hold of it, don't we? The Bible tells us how to do that. The Bible says that salvation or freedom from spheres of death comes in two parts. First is to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and second, to confess him as your Lord and Savior. That's a very simple thing to do but it's something that you have to choose to do on your own. Even though it belongs to every person, only the people that believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord Will partake of it and receive it for themselves, participate in what God has done for them, right? Well, the same thing's true with the other parts of redemption, what we're redeemed from. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We looked at this a little bit last week regarding sickness. Let's look at it a little bit further. Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, really, the 90% of the book of Deuteronomy is, no, is Moses' farewell address to the children of Israel. He knows that they're going into the promised land and he's not going with them. God's already revealed that to them. And as a result, he's trying to give them warnings and encouragement before he goes. And and most of the book of Deuteronomy is his farewell address. And so in that farewell address, he summarizes some things in verse 28 or chapter 28, excuse me. He starts off in the first fourteen verses of the chapter and says, "It'll come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of His commandments." In other words, keep the law which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And then tells them all the good things He'll do for them. But over in verse fifteen, it starts off and says, "But if thou, it shall come to pass if thou will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe all his, to observe to do." all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that they, all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. In other words, it's your choice. Moses is telling the children of Israel, it's up to you. Please notice, folks, it's not up to God who's blessed and who's cursed. One of the things that the sovereignty of God folks miss it, and is they think God's picking winners and losers in everything in life. He does not. If he does, then that makes him a respecter of persons, which means we've got parts of the Bible we've got to tear out. But he's not. God's not picking winners and losers. He picked everybody to win through Jesus. But it's up to the individual. It's the individual's choice whether or not they'll partake of that victory that he's made available to us. Well, what are some of these curses? Verse 16, Curses shalt thou be in the city, and curses shalt thou be in the field. Curses shall be your basket and your store. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land and the increase of your kind and the flocks of your sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. In other words, he's talking about being cursed in business, cursed wherever you live. Cursed is as far as your children are concerned and your possessions are concerned. No matter where you go, you can't escape the curse. And that curse is the result of the broken commandment. Now, remember, Jesus Christ has redeemed us from this curse of the law. This is what we're redeemed from. And the reason Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law is because he was made a curse for us. In the same way that he paid the price for spiritual death, he paid the price for all these calamities. Physical, financial, social, and any other area that these calamities entail or encompass. It talks a lot about sickness. Sickness. Verse 20, the Lord shall send or literally allow upon thee cursing, cursing, vexation and rebuke and all that thou settest thine hand unto to do until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken me. Notice he's saying sickness and disease, pestilence and, and plagues and so forth is a part of the curse. It's not a matter of God bring it upon the, upon you. God doesn't cause it. As a matter of fact, he's made a way for you to escape it. But if you choose to disobey the commandments... Speaking to Israel, if Israel chose to disobey the commandments, then these things would take place upon them, and they would continue until the people were destroyed. There's no part-time curse here, folks. It's full-time everywhere and anywhere you go. He talks about the the, uh, the pestilence. Verse 21: The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee from off the land, whether thou goest to possess it again. The translators translated these verses in the causative sense when the verbs are in the permissive sense. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Verse 27, the Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt, and with the emeralds, and with the scab, and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness, and blindness, and astonishment of heart. So mental illness and disease is a part of the curse of the law. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt only be oppressed and spoiled evermore. And no man shall save thee. Verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot and to the top of the head. Remember God's not doing this. He's saying this is what's going to happen if you choose to disobey. Your choice. Notice verse 38. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and shall gather but little in for the locusts shall consume it. It's talking about business and results in business. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes for the worms shall eat them. Thou shalt have olive tree, trees throughout all their coasts but thou shalt not anoint thyself with the oil because the olive shall cast its fruit. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters but shalt not enjoy them for they shall go into captivity. All thy trees and fruit of the land shall the locust consume. The stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. He goes further in verse 58. and says, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. That means awesome or terrible. And the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sicknesses, and of long continuance. Now, folks, let me stop here long enough to make a comment here. And that is, there are certain uh, traits and and sicknesses and diseases that seem to pass through family lines. For example, if you go to a doctor and fill out, go to a new doctor and fill out the the, uh, the 32-page book of information that they want you to give them, all this kind of stuff, they want to ask you about your family history because they want to know if heart disease runs in your family or if cancer runs in your family. If Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and, and diseases running through family lines is a part of the curse of the law, then I don't care what your mama or your daddy had. You can be free from it. Verse 60, Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Again, that's not God doing it. It's God allowing it through man's disobedience. Also, verse 61, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law, will them them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. So, folks, you can clearly see that the the curse of the law, as defined by by Deuteronomy chapter 28, the curse of the law includes sickness and poverty. Without question, sickness and poverty are a part of the curse of the law. Now, somebody said, I think it was F.F. F. Bosworth said, sin and sickness are the twin, uh, twin children of spiritual death. There was no sickness, there was no poverty until spiritual death came on the scene, which, was, which came through the open door of Adam's sin. Sickness and disease, therefore, and poverty are not God's plan for his children. Never were his plan. He didn't make the earth to, to contain or to to have any type of sickness or lack in any way whatsoever. God made the earth the fullness thereof. He made everything that the earth would produce before he ever made man and put him in the middle of it. God's intent is to provide for man in abundance. He made more trees than Adam could ever sit in the shade of. He made more grass than Adam could ever walk barefoot through. He made more water than Adam could ever drink and more fruit of the trees than he could ever eat. God's intent, God's plan is for man to be supplied abundantly and to walk in health, live in health all the days of his life. Now, God's plan was messed up. He's not the one that messed it up. We can't even say the devil messed it up. The devil tempted Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve's choice to sin and disobey God is what opened the door to spiritual death, which brought with it sickness and poverty. Yet the Bible says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That means Christ has redeemed us. By definition, Christ has redeemed us, number one, from spiritual death, number two, from sickness, and number three, from poverty. Now I can hear gears turning in people's minds. I know what people are thinking. You hear things like that and you say, Well, that sounds great, Pastor Mike, but why am I dealing with sickness and poverty? You just don't understand my situation. I do understand your situation. But just as Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law and redeemed all of mankind from spiritual death, it takes somebody by an act of their will choosing to take hold of it, to receive it, and act on it for it to become a reality for them. Do you realize that everybody that goes to hell is redeemed from spiritual death? Do you realize that? That's why it's called the good news. That's why the gospel of Jesus is the good news. There's nothing for you and I to do except accept and receive what Jesus has already done. It can't be any easier than it is. But in the same way that everyone is redeemed from spiritual death, everyone in, in, in like manner is redeemed from the twin children of spiritual death, which is sickness and poverty. But it has to be partaken of. It has to be received. It has to be acted on. Now, how do we know that that works the same way? Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We see the scripture clearly tells us that God made Jesus to be sin for us, to redeem us from spiritual death. But notice what the Bible says about sickness. Let's start in verse 3. This is, everybody realizes this is the messianic chapter. This is what the, the sacrifice God's sacrifice, God's redemptive lamb would do for mankind as Isaiah is looking forward into the future. It hadn't happened yet when Isaiah writes these things. Verse 3, he said, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, that's the word pains, and acquainted with grief, that's the word sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, that's the word sickness, and carried our sorrows, that's the word pains. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Now, when did he do that? Did Jesus bear our sickness and our pains when he was here on the earth, ministering to, to mankind? Nope. He showed us what God's will was concerning sickness and disease, and that's why he never turned away anybody that came to him to be healed. But he didn't bear those things while he was here in the earth. He only bore our sickness and disease when he was on the cross. In the same way that Jesus showed us God's attitude towards sin when he was in his earthly ministry, but he didn't act as our substitute towards sin until he hung on the cross. His earthly ministry was to reveal the Father to us. His work on the cross was to be our substitute. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now, when did that take place? In his earthly ministry or on the cross? On the cross. And the, the things lead, and when I say on the cross, I mean the things leading up to the cross. The trial in, uh, before Pilate and so forth. The beating and such. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. We know transgressions and iniquities have to do with sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now, this word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It's translated in many places in the Old Testament as prosperity. In other words, there was a price paid for every aspect, every part of mankind. We know that the curse of the law was spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. So those three things, since Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, those three things have to be paid for. Here's where it says poverty was paid for. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The punishment for poverty was paid. And with his stripes, we are healed. Notice it's the same blood being shed for sin as what is shed for poverty, as what is shed for sickness. Now skip down with me to verse 10. Let me get this uh, up on my iPad real quick so I can give you some other translations of this Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 it said yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he has put him to grief now this word grief is the same word translated sickness up in verses 3 and 4 now I wish the translators had been a little bit more um, um, well I don't know what word to use I don't I don't want to imply that they were dishonest in what they did But they had to ignore a lot of things to come up with the words that they chose to use here. Same words they found in other places they translated sickness and disease. Why they translated griefs and sorrows here, I have no explanation. It's possible, and maybe to give them the benefit of the doubt, they just, according to their religious training, could not accept that Christ... Paid the price of the of his shed blood for anything other than sin. I don't know. But they had to go into some kind of contortions to make this fit. It's kind of like the Supreme Court coming up with the rule that Obamacare is legal. You've got to make up your own reasoning for that. Well, here's what they... This is exactly what they did. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Another translation says... Uh, the Jerusalem Bible says... Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him by disease, to see his soul offering itself in restitution, that he might see his seed, prolong his days, and that the purpose of the Lord might prosper by his hand. The Jewish Bible said, Yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see him present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and at his hand Adonai's uh, desire will be accomplished. So you can see that that other Jewish um, I don't want to say orthodox because they're not recognized by the Jewish orthodoxy, but other Jewish translations recognize that this same word that's translated sickness and disease in other places should be equally translated sickness and disease in this place. Literally, uh, well, let me read you the literal version. The literal version says, but Jehovah pleased to crush him to make him sick. That's the more accurate translation of any that there is. To make him sick. He made him sick. Now, folks, in the same way that Jesus was made to be sin, in 2 Corinthians 5, twenty one, 21, the Bible says Jesus was made to be sickness. As a substitutionary work, that doesn't mean that he had leprosy. It doesn't mean that he got contracted cancer on the cross. It means God laid upon him the punishment for spiritual death. The twin children of spiritual death are sickness and poverty. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for, for sickness and disease Now, if he paid the price that means you don't, don't have to that means your relationship with sickness and disease has been broken that means your relationship with poverty has been broken by the work of Jesus well Pastor Mike that sounds great I'm glad to hear that my relationship with sickness and poverty has been broken I'm by Jesus but I'm looking for it to be broken in real life that's what we want right well, how does that work? Let me prove this to you again. We've, uh, we've proved it through sickness. We've proved it through uh, spiritual death. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul writing to the church, New Testament church. By the way, Isaiah 53 is confirmed in the New Testament as well. Peter says, 1 Peter two twenty four, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree," talking about Jesus... That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now Isaiah looks forward and says by whose stripes we are healed. Peter looks backwards and says it's already done. So by whose stripes, Jesus' stripes, we were healed. So it's not just an Old Testament doctrine. It's a New Testament doctrine. It's something that's been accomplished. Now notice what it says about poverty. Notice what it says about the price for poverty being paid in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9. Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like to define grace as the finished work of Jesus. Everything that we have through the grace of God is because of the finished work of Jesus. You know the finished work of Jesus. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you through his poverty might be, what's the next word? Rich. That you through his poverty might be rich. Now, I, I, it's, it's always amazed me. I, I don't understand why people do it except just religious blindness. Blindness to the truth through, through religion, religious doctrine and so forth perhaps. But it's always amazed me how that people think that Jesus was made poor while he was here on the earth in his earthly ministry. Folks, Jesus wasn't made sick while he was here on the earth in his earthly ministry. Jesus didn't pay the price, he didn't pay the price, he didn't have any relationship with spiritual death while he was here on the earth in his earthly ministry. Those things happened on the cross. Well, why then would we expect that the Holy Ghost is telling us that Jesus paid the price or acted as a substitute regarding poverty in any way other than when he hung on the cross? See, people try to use the scriptures where Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And they'll say, well, see, that's when Jesus was made poor. Folks, if that's when Jesus was made poor, then the price for poverty has not been paid for you. If Jesus just experienced lack of money here on the earth, that doesn't pay the price for the curse of poverty that came upon mankind because of Adam's sin. See, Jesus didn't shed his blood to, to, to be without a home or to experience a lack of finances. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus that we can be redeemed from anything and everything. So why would we expect that Jesus here on the earth redeemed us from poverty? We can disprove the fact that Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus is literally talking to somebody about following him, leaving home and following him. And he's talking about when I go away from home, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. I I have to make sacrifices to obey what God's plan is for my life. But on the cross you remember Jesus looked at John and pointed or nodded over to Mary and said behold your mother looked at Mary and nodded to John and said behold your son in other words he's transferring the care of Mary his mother unto John the apostle John if Jesus hadn't been caring for her then that makes him a lawbreaker because the old testament law says The law of Moses says that the eldest son is responsible for the care of his mother when the father dies. We know Joseph is off the scene. We don't know what happened to him, but we know that he's not on the scene. Which means Jesus, as the eldest son, he's got half-brothers and sisters, but as the eldest son, he, by law, the law of Moses, is responsible for taking care of his mother. Well, what kind of son takes care of his mother if he doesn't give her a place to live? See, folks, by definition, if Jesus doesn't have a house, if he doesn't have a home, has not provided a home for his mother, then he's a uh, a sinner because he's broken the law of Moses. But the fact that, and I think this is the only reason that the Bible tells us that he conferred uh, uh, responsibility to John, the apostle John, who is very dear to his heart, You could well understand that his relationship with John would uh, would be be the, the natural choice for taking care of his mother. Now, why does the Bible tell us that? There's only one reason, one explanation for it. And that is to show us that Jesus has been taking care of his mother. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he moved from Galilee to Caesarea. Not Caesarea, what's in that? Capernaum. Move to Capernaum. Well, if you don't have a place to live, what does that mean? We went from one alley to another? We found a nice bridge in Capernaum that we lived under? Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus had a treasurer and that Judas, who was the treasurer, was stealing out of the bag and nobody else knew? Folks, if you've got $2 and somebody takes one, wouldn't you know? There's only one way that they wouldn't know that Judas was stealing from them, and that is if there was enough to keep it hidden. It doesn't sound to me like he's doing without. When Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes the first time, he asked Philip. He said, what do we have? Philip says, well, we've got five loaves and two fishes. But what is that with all this crowd? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Philip says, where are we going to buy enough food? He didn't say, where would we get the money to buy the food? He says, where would we buy the food? Costco is closed. (laughs) Folks, the idea that Jesus was poor here on the earth is just ridiculous. And the reason why it's ridiculous is because the Bible says that if you follow the commandments of God, God will make you rich. You remember, turn with me over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 17. And when he was come forth, gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what must I do or what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? His heart's in the right place, right? He's saying, what may I do to, to inherit, inherit eternal life? and Jesus said unto him why callest thou me good there is none good but one and that is God thou knowest the commandments in other words he's saying the way to God in the, uh, until Jesus goes to the cross and is raised from the dead is and was through keeping the commandments so he gives him a few do not commit adultery that's number seven do not kill that's number What is? It? I can't read my writing is that number six do not steal do not bear false witness defraud not honor thy father and mother And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I've observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I want you to understand something. This is the man that's going to be identified as the rich young ruler. Jesus loved the guy while he was rich. Jesus loved him and said unto him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatsoever you have, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. What is it that he lacks? Treasure in heaven. The problem is not what he's got. The problem is what he doesn't have. Jesus doesn't say, well, you've got one problem. That is, you've got too much. Your one problem is you're rich. That's not what he says. He said, there's one thing that you lack. What does he lack? Treasure in heaven. So what does Jesus do? He tells him how to get treasure in heaven. How do you get treasure in heaven? By being a giver. You may notice that one of the commandments that Jesus left out in the list the partial list that he gave him was do not covet he didn't give him that one and if he had given him that one then the the rich young ruler couldn't have said i've kept that one too in other words jesus is saying your problem is not your money your problem is your trust in your money what's the answer for trusting in money lay up treasure in heaven how do you do that by giving You look at how somebody spends their money and you can tell where their heart is right away. And that's the issue. The issue is where is your heart? So he says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell what you have and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Now folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but he's offering to make him a disciple. This is stuff that he only said to the twelve. now let me ask you this you knowing what the Bible says about giving and the promise of giving and receiving what would have happened if he had sold what he had and gave to the poor would the commandment not have come to pass for him give and it shall be given unto you good measure pressed down shaking the other and running over shall men give unto your bosom for with the same measure you give shall it be given unto you again If he's telling him to give whatever he has, if that means give everything you have, then that means God is going to bless him back in the same measure and double what he's got at least. God's not trying to take things out of his hand. He's trying to take the things that are in his hand out of his heart. And there's only one way to do that, and that's by letting go and giving. Can you see that? And he, the rich young ruler, was sad at that saying and went away grieved. Why? For he had great possessions. I would submit to you that the possessions had him. The problem is not his money. God promised to make Abraham rich. Follow me. Obey what I tell you to do. And I'll make you rich. And he did. Made Abraham the richest guy around. That was one of the promises that he made to Israel. You keep my commandments and I'll bless you in such a degree that everybody will know that I'm with you. The Bible even talks about making the heathen people jealous. And Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples, now here, notice after the man walks away sad, thinking that, that you know, and, and this is so true of many of us, We think that the commandments of God are are trying to take something away from us. And God's trying to get something better to us. But our ways are not always his ways. And so Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples. How hardly or how hard it is. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples patted one another on the back and said yeah it's good to be poor like us. Only the poor can be godly. Only the humble can truly find their way into heaven. And the way to be humble is not to have any of this world's goods. Is that the response of the disciples? And the disciples were astonished at his words. Now folks, I'm not suggesting that it's hard to surprise these guys. But please notice that they know enough about Abraham's blessing and the material possession part of Abraham's blessings to be floored and blown away at Jesus saying it's tough for rich people to enter into the kingdom. Why? Because they know God's promise to make his people rich. They're astonished. If this is a poor group of people, they're going to look at each other and stick their hands in their uh, in their belt loops and say, yep, ought to be like us this would be the perfect time for them to brag except that they know that the blessing of abraham is riches it's not all it is but it includes it and the disciples were astonished at his words but jesus answered them again and said unto them children how hard it is for them that trust in their riches Now, he's making the distinction. When he just said, for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, he saw that they didn't understand. He was talking about where people put their heart in, what the people put their trust in. Now, he's going to separate it out and show them clearly how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Do you realize what they're saying? They're saying this leaves all of Israel out. Because Abraham's blessings is riches. It includes being made rich. Who then can be saved? If rich men are not candidates for the kingdom of God and God promised to make the children of Israel rich as a part of Abraham's blessing, who then can be saved? Now remember, that's what started all this stuff. The rich man came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I be saved? Now the disciples are saying, well, who then can be saved? They're probably looking at each other and saying, are we in or out? And Jesus looking upon them said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Well, if all things are possible, that means it's possible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. With God. How do you make God a part of this? By being a giver. By not letting yourself trust in the riches that God brings into your hands. Do you see what he's saying? Now folks. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter. um, Well turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's a part of. Moses. Exhortation and encouragement before he goes off the scene and notice some things he says about the promised land now I'll take for granted that you understand this all of the promised land is the blessing of Abraham one of the things God told Abraham is I'll give you the land that is beyond the river Jordan and and so on and so forth he gives him the boundaries of the land all that shall be yours for as far as your eye can see it shall be yours well this is the fulfillment of that so the promised land is the promise or the blessing of Abraham that God promised to him hundreds of years before. So them going into the, to the promised land is taking hold of, at least a part of, the blessing of Abraham. Now notice what, what Moses said would take place in this promised land. Let's start in verse 12, Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 12. It says, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you will hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too. And he will love thee and will bless thee and will multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, the corn and the wine and thine oil and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep and the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. In other words, your business will be blessed. Thou shalt be blessed above all the people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon them, but will lay or allow them upon all them that hate thee. Turn with me over to chapter 8. Verse 6. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandment of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water. Here's God's plan. This is what your promised land is supposed to be look, supposed to look like. The Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, not a barren land, not a diseased land, not a barely-get-by land, but a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that bring out of, spring out of valleys and hills. Now, theirs was a geographic territory. Yours and mine is not. But if God wanted better for them than he wants for you, then he wanted more for his servants than he wants for his children. Which means he's a respecter of persons. Which means a lot of the Bible is untrue. Well, if we come to the place where we have to pick and choose what part of the Bible is true, who gets to choose and who gets to decide? Are we left to decide for ourselves? Folks, that's not the way the Bible works. This is what God wants for all of his children. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths, that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Doesn't sound like barely getting by to me. Where did the church come up with the idea that to be poor is to be humble? Where did the church come up with the idea that to be godly is to do without? It's not what the Bible says. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness; thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. In other words, resources are abundant. Now, your resources may not be the same resources, the, the resources you need, or may not be the same resources that they needed, but resources are intended to be abundant for you. When thou hast eaten and art full, God doesn't mind you being full. Then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments. In other words, don't let your heart get turned from doing what the Bible says because of the stuff you've got. That was the problem that the rich young ruler had. He had forgotten that the Bible told him to give and be generous because of the stuff that he owned. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. In not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses. That must be okay with God to have a good house. And dwell therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply. Doesn't sound like barely having enough. Doesn't sound like just having the bills paid and no no more than that. When thy flocks and thy herds multiply and thy silver and gold is multiplied. Multiplied not added to. God's into multiplying, folks. If you're adding, you need to change your arithmetic. God multiplies. When your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up. Be careful about this. Don't let your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, there's a couple of things about this that seem interesting to me, and that is Moses doesn't put any limits on what they can have. Moses does not use the the church method of saying, now be careful, don't get greedy. And since there's a danger of getting greedy, just don't, don't look to have anything at all. Folks, that's where the poverty mentality came in the church world. Well, we don't want to be greedy. Well, then don't be. Moses is telling them not to forget God. That means it's possible for them to not forget God. It's their choice. It's up to them. It's not up to God. Yeah, but some will say love, uh, the money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. You can have money and not love it. And you can love money and not have a dime. It has nothing to do with your possessions. It has to do with your heart. The attitude of your heart. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and gold is multiplied, and all that ye have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions, and drought where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not that he might humble thee and he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. What in the world is God saying you came through hard times for so that you'd learn God is your source and God could give you more later? Do you good at your latter end? God's not saying, boy, remember those wilderness days. Those were the days when you only had enough manna for one day. had to scrape and get by. Had to look to me to bring water to you from the rock. Man, those were the days. Now that was the traveling to the days that God had planned. The days God had planned is dwelling, eating without scarceness and being full, having your silver and gold multiplied, dwelling in goodly houses. That's Those are the days that God was looking forward to. That's God's intent. That was the blessing of Abraham. And thou will say, here's what the person says, whose heart's lifted up, forgets God. And thou will say in in my heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. The Septuagint says great wealth. The work of my hand brought me this great wealth. What's God's intent? What's God's goal here? For you to remember he's the one that provided for you when it was nothing in the wilderness? Or when it's a great abundance. God's the same. He wants you to be the same. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Power to get wealth. Power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Now folks, remember back to the original thing that we said. The problem with mankind is spiritual death. The reason we needed a redeemer was because we were dead spiritually. Spiritual death is defined as separation from God. We were separated from God. So Jesus, that, what that means is we were separated from God as far as our spirits were concerned. Heaven was not our home. Hell was our destination. We were separated from God where sickness and disease were concerned. We were separated from God physically. Sickness and disease had a right to rule over our bodies. We were separated from God where material provision was concerned. But Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does that mean? That means he rejoined our spirits together with God. He rejoined our bodies together with God. Instead of our bodies being separated from God and subject to sickness and disease, we are now reunited with God and able, it's not an automatic thing, but able to resist and take authority over sickness and disease so that it's not allowed to remain in our flesh. We were separated from God by spiritual death where God was no longer involved in our material finances or provisions. But Jesus changed that. Even the Old Testament law, the keeping of the Old Testament law provided a, a benefit that many of us look at now and think, wow, that's better than what we have. Well, if it's better than what we have, there must be something wrong with what we're doing. Because we're the ones that have the better covenant established upon better promises. God still has the same intent to establish his covenant today. And notice he says that one of the means or the ways that God establishes his covenant, the same covenant that he gave to Abraham, is that he brings us into wealth. Why? Because Jesus was made poor on the cross for our sakes, so that we through his poverty might be rich. A. A. Swift is a man that was uh, a part of the, uh, well, he's one of the founders of um, the Assembly of God organization when it uh, organized in 1914. And uh, a few years prior to that, in 1911, he was in the um, uh, the Inland Missionary Alliance to China. And 1911, things were a lot different than they are now. And, and uh, there was a lot more openness in some ways to preach the gospel in China than there is today. And um, through a series of events, he got filled with the Holy Ghost in 1911. Well, the, the church group that he was with, the denominational group that he was with and a missionary for didn't agree with speaking in other tongues. So the Lord started dealing with him about, you know, your are uh, taking their money under false pretenses. Because if the churches knew that you were filled with the Holy Ghost, they wouldn't support you because they don't, they don't believe in that and so forth. And so Brother Swift asked the Lord in prayer. He said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, don't make a fuss about it. Just give them back their mission station. He said, well, then what do I do? He said, well, go over to another district or area or whatever it was, you know, several hundred thousand people between the two places. He said, go to another district and start your own work. He said, well, Lord, how am I going to start my own work? He said, I don't have any support from America. Now, the support that he was getting was $103 a month. Now, I guess that went further than it would today maybe, but it sure doesn't sound like much money, does it? And it wasn't a whole lot of money even back then. But, he, but that's what came in, and that was not just to support him, but to support the mission work too. And so he got $103 a month through this Missionary Alliance organization. And he said, Lord, what am I going to do? He said, how am I going to start my own work? He said, I, I, don't, I don't have any support from America. I don't know of anybody in America that's, that would support me, you know, that I could go raise support from or anything like that. What do I do? And the Lord spoke back to him and said, well, don't you know that I promised to make you rich? And he said, well, no, I didn't know that. Where does it say that in the word? If it says that, I want to know that. So he took him over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That the Lord, through his poverty on the cross, not talking about his work here on the earth, on the cross, through his poverty, he was made rich. Why? Because Jesus paid the price for spiritual death and all the characteristics of spiritual death, which are sickness and poverty. So he showed him. From Psalm 50, how that the silver and gold, or from Haggai chapter 2, that the silver and gold is his. In Psalm 50, verse 10, how that the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. He said, now, why do you think I put all these things here on the earth? The earth and the fullness thereof is mine. Why do you think I put this here? For the devil and his crowd? Folks, think about that. Let that sink in. Why is the earth abundant in resources? Because God made it for his children. He made it for you. So he said, he asked, Brother Swift is saying, well, what should I do? He said, well, he said, go over and start this new work. And he said, don't pray about money the way you've been praying for it. See, the money that you need is down here on the earth. You asking me for money, if I sent money from heaven, it would be counterfeit money, and I'm not a counterfeiter. So don't pray for money like you have been he said the money you need is on the earth he said claim what you need well that's a new thought isn't it claim what you need he said secondly tell the devil to take his money off or take his hands off of your money he said and third send the ministering spirits go forth to cause the money to come brother swift said Telling this to Brother Hagin. Told him this personally. Brother Swift said, at point number three, I just lost it. He said, I said, whoa, wait a minute, Lord. What? Tell them, the what? And the Lord said, yeah, haven't you read in my word over in Hebrews chapter one? Haven't you read in my word that the angels are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them that shall be heirs of salvation? He said, I thought that said too. to minister to them. He said he had to look it up. Son of a gun found out the Lord was right. It says the ministering spirits are sent forth to minister for those. Who shall be heirs of salvation. Now in our world we don't know much about people that minister for others. Most everybody's in it for themselves. The closest thing we've got in our society is waiters and waitresses. Servers. Now what do waiters and waitresses do? They go and get your order. Do they just bring you what they want you to have? Do they bring something to the table and say, the kitchen has decided that this is what you should eat today? No, you put in your order and they go get it for you. That's what ministering spirits are sent forth to do, folks, to fulfill your orders. Brother Swift said, telling the story, he said, well, he said, okay, Lord. He he said, in fear and trembling, he said, I did what he said. I, I, I claimed the promises of the word. I claimed the money that we needed. He said, and we started the work over in the other place. And, and the first six months, he said, it looked like we were going to starve. He said, but by the, the end of the year, the, the 12 months from the time that we started, he said, there had been $3, and uh, $3,750 $3, come in, more than three times what they had before. He said, from that mission's work, that mission station, they started 50 other churches, every one of them self-supporting. See, everybody in that part of the world was expecting American dollars to come in to support and, and buy and provide for and all that kind of stuff. He said, we taught our churches to be self-supporting. A hundred years later, there, most of those churches are still in existence because they were built on the truth of the word. They were built on the word. See, folks, what does it mean for God to have rejoined himself to you both spiritually, physically, and financially? It means you have a right to lay claim on what's here on the earth. Now, Jesus, now I'll close with this. Jesus said in talking about the kingdom of God, he said the whole of the kingdom of God is like planting seed in the ground. Any, any of you ever done that? Not many of us plant much anymore, do we? When I was a kid, my mom had a little garden out back And man, I would bug her every day. How long is it going to be till we get this? How long is it going to be till this grows? How long is it going to be? I'd drive her nuts asking every day. Well, in some ways, I'm still like a little boy because I plant my tomatoes and I want to know how long it's going to be before I can eat. I go out and check those things every day. I get excited if something happens and I don't get a chance to check them because two days goes by and man, a lot of growth has happened. I'm still in some ways just as impatient as I was for things to grow. Now what does it mean when Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man planting seed in the ground? It means everything about the kingdom of God that pertains to this earth. Now not everything about the kingdom of God pertains to the earth. But physical healing does. It has to do with the amending of the body. Prosperity or financial provision does. Because your finances, the finances you need come from this earth, not from heaven. So the things that pertain to this earth are like a man planting seed in the ground. Well, everything is. But regarding things that come from the earth or pertain to the earth, it means it's involved with and connected with the realm of time. Now, I don't know of any seeds you plant and instantly get a crop. Do you? Yet Jesus said the kingdom of God was like planting seed in the ground. That means everything that you need from heaven that pertains to this earth or comes through the, 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 uh, the realm of this world, this natural world, is going to be connected with and associated with the realm of time. It's going to take time. Sometimes people come and they say, Pastor Mike, we've been tithing and tithing and tithing and tithing and tithing and it doesn't seem to be working. Well, you know what that means? That means you've got a lot of hard road behind you. That means you're closer to the goal than you ever were before. Yeah, but how long is it going to be? I don't know. But if you give up now, it'll never happen. Folks, seed is designed to grow. If it's planted in good ground and taken care of, watered and so forth, it's designed to grow. Giving, paying your tithes, and doing what the Bible says that brings in the financial blessings of God, those things work. They can only not work if you quit doing what the Bible says that causes them to work. In other words, you give up on them. That's the only thing that can keep it from working. Man, I remember when I first started believing God for money. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. And it seemed like everything was a struggle. Well, it seems like now when I remember that it that happened to somebody else. Doesn't even seem like it was me. Because those days pass. And in some ways, those days are precious because you're so in, in, staying so close to God. You're walking so close to God. You want to make sure you don't make any little mistake. In some ways, those t- those things are precious. But you got to be careful you don't get caught up in works. Well, if I don't do everything just right, then the blessing of God won't work for me. God won't meet my needs, folks. That's hogwash. If it depended on you doing everything right, you'd already be toast. That's true for all of us. Look at it with your kids. Your kids do a lot of things that aren't right and you still love them just as much. You still provide for them just as much. Even if sometimes you get mad and say, that's it, I'm not helping you anymore. You do anyway. God never gets mad and says he won't. Seed always produces. It's what it was designed to do. The word of God is like seed in the ground. It always produces. But we have to take hold of it. Now, how do you take hold of the, the Jesus dying for your spiritual well-being? How do you take hold of the sacrifice Jesus made for spiritual death? Well, as we said earlier, the Bible says there's two parts to it. Number one, you have to believe. Believe from your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. What basis do we have to believe that? Just because the Word says so. You can take our testimony or accept our testimony or the testimony of others if you want to, but that's not proof for you either. It just comes down to accepting what the Word says. The second part is, then you have to acknowledge or confess it with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. In the same way, you have to accept that Jesus not only died for your sins, but he died for your sickness and he died for your material well-being. Why? Because the Word says so. Well, you can take our testimony on that too. There's plenty of people that can give you a testimony on healing. Plenty of other people that can give you a testimony on God's financial provision. But that doesn't help you. You still have to make your own choice. I hope that it encourages you or inspires you. But it doesn't have to. It's up to you. Well then what's the second part for that? To confess Jesus as your healer and your provider. Now folks that works just as surely as getting saved does. In fact salvation is an all encompassing term. That means freedom from sickness and freedom from poverty. Jesus paid the price for the whole package. It works. How many of you have found the tithing works? My goodness, I ought to take another offering. (laughs) Some of the hardest times for me financially have turned out to be the most precious. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to experience them again. Some of the trouble that we had with finances with getting this building built and and taking possession of the land. I I, I don't like the way some other people say it, so I won't use their phrase. But when you take a step forward for God, there are oftentimes, many times, maybe not every time, but many times there's there's a real resistance because the devil doesn't want you to set your roots any deeper. He can't do anything about how deep you've planted your roots already, but he doesn't want you to go any deeper than you are. And so these things oftentimes become a struggle for a time. For a time. It won't always be this way. And the end result, if you hold fast, do what the Bible says to do, is you'll find out that God was faithful to honor his word. In other words, the seed of his word that you planted into the ground of your heart will produce just like the word says so. It'll work. So I guess my encouragement to you this morning or my my message to you this morning, if you're in financial difficulty particularly, stay the course. Keep doing what the Word says. Now for me, the thing that always held me steady is I knew I was doing what God wanted me to do. When I was was, uh, uh, in Bible school and finances were just non-existent, not just tough, just non-existent, I knew God sent me to school. Well, I know that He wouldn't send me to school to fail. So even though it looked like failure all around me, I knew that it had to work because God sent me there. If I hadn't known for certain that God sent me to Bible school, if it had just been my idea or something I just decided I wanted to try, I don't know what I would have done. That wouldn't have been enough to hold me steady. When we had the trouble with the church, I knew God told me to do it. I knew God told me to pick the contractors that he told me to pick. Now, I can't explain to you why he told me to pick a dishonest contractor, except for the experience that I gained through the Word. There'd be times I'd get mad at this guy and I'd say, God, you told me to pick him. Why in the world would you choose this guy? I had the Lord uh, finally answer me on that after praying many, many times. Finally, the Lord answered me. I said, Lord, what is all this for? He said, Preparation. I thought, oh my God. Does that mean something worse is coming down the road? What are we going Then I got, you know, wishing I'd never asked. Folks, the seed of God's word always produces. God's word is true. Whether it seems like it's true to you, whether it feels like it's true to you, God's word is true in every case. In every case. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to base our lives upon your word. Thank you that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He rejoined us together with you spiritually. He rejoined us together with you where our physical bodies are concerned. And he rejoins us together with you concerning our finances and our provision is concerned. Thank you, Father, that because you are with us, it doesn't matter what the devil throws up against us. Thank you, Lord, that because you are with us, we can count on your word to be true and to come to pass on our behalf in every situation and in every area of life. Father, we thank you that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Eternal death, spiritual death has been replaced with eternal life. Separation from God has been replaced with union with God. Instead of the commandment of the law, Father, we have the freedom to walk in the Spirit, to walk by faith. Instead of trying uh, trying to and struggling to do enough good works and be good enough, we now serve in newness of life. Thank you, Father, that Christ has redeemed us from spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.